as we're looking at First Kings this morning, there's one thing I want you to see as we're heading into this next chapter together here in chapter 20, is that there's a dude named Mahab that we've talked about for several weeks, and uh, it's been very apparent that King Ahab's heart is set against all things Christ-related. He's set against all things related to our God, Yahweh. And there's been an, uh, a prophet coming to him named Elijah. And the main aim of Elijah's ministry, or one of the main aims of Elijah's ministry, has been to be used by God to go and capture Ahab's heart and to turn it back towards God, to turn it back towards the things of Yahweh, because where the king goes in his worship, there his people go in their worship. And so now God has set out several times over to go out, to bring about things, to, to display his superiority it is to worship other gods besides Yahweh. And so he proved it multiple times. One, the first time by bringing a drought to Ahab's nation in order to prove that Baal, the god of the storm, was powerless against him. And the second thing he did is that he brought fire down on a mountain in a a big battle against Baal and against Baal's prophets. And he showed up in a major way. And then again, immediately after that, after he proved his superiority, he brought rain for their nation they so desperately needed. Repeated over and over and over again, God is coming to capture Ahab's heart and to, to lead him to feel affection towards the things of Yahweh, towards the things of God. But as we know through Scripture and through our own lives, that people will always, not generally, but but signs and wonders will not always capture a person's heart. Signs and miracles and wonders will not always capture someone's heart and develop affection for Christ. People can and will reject Christ even after the most exquisite or amazing miracle done by God in the world. That's just the nature of it. But even in spite of that, remember we talked about that last week when Jesus said, uh, he was talking about the rich man and Lazarus and a- Abraham was there. And, and the rich man said, hey, go tell my brothers that hell's real and they don't want to come here. They should believe in Jesus. And he said, no, no, no. If they don't believe the word of God, they won't believe it even if someone rises from the dead. Even the greatest miracles will not produce faith if the person is set against believing. And so in spite of that, here's what's awesome about this text. In spite of that reality and in spite of Ahab's repeated refusal to turn back towards Christ or turns back towards God, God still comes. It's an, it's an amazing thing. I've, I've seen this just like looking at this text, just thinking about it. I'm like, why is God still showing up with Ahab? Ahab's very clearly said, I'm not interested. Repeatedly, I'm not interested. But yet time and time and time again, here comes God with his mercy. So look at the text with me in chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Now King Ben-Hadab of Aram assembled his entire army. Thirty-two kings along with horses and chariots were, were with him. And he marched up 
and besieged Samaria, and he fought against it. Remember, Samaria is the new capital of Israel. It's Ahab's capital. And he sent messengers into the city to King Ahab of Israel and said to him, This is what Ben-Hadad says. Your silver and your gold are mine, and your best wives and children are mine as well. So let's pray, and then we'll start to get into God's word. And so, Father, we come before you. We thank you for this opportunity we have to look at your word this morning. So I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds to hear what you want to say to us, how you want to reveal your goodness and your pursuit of us to us. And so we pray that we would receive that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so as God is setting this situation up in which Ben-Hadad, this king from Aram, is setting up his army. We're going to talk more about him and his army in just a second. But essentially, here's a problem. Ahab's capital is now being laid siege to. Got an army surrounding it. And he's in trouble because his nation has just been experiencing severe drought. And so there's a, this is a real problem for him. And so God is doing this. We're going to see that in just a little bit too. But here's the question. God is pursuing Ahab in this moment. This is the next step. And God's saying, okay, Ahab, I'm still coming after you. I'm still coming after your heart. But the question is this. What does God require from Ahab? What does God, what's his end goal when he's pursuing this king in this moment? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 tells us what God's end goal is for Ahab here. God is pursuing his heart, and here is what he requires from Ahab, that Ahab would love the Lord his God with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength. So Deuteronomy 6 tells us that God's great heart for Ahab and for you is, is that you would serve Christ out of the affection in your heart towards him. That's what his goal is. That's what his desire is. God's not about grabbing your submission in the strict sense of a dictator like Putin would. Like that's not what his, that's not what his, his heart or his desire is. Like he's not trying to be the dictator of the world. What he desires is to be the center of your affections. He desires to be the center of your affections and then flowing out of your regenerated and rearranged heart that's now filled with love for Christ would then flow and come obedience, the godly fruit of obedience, the godly fruit of peace, the godly fruit of joy, the godly fruit of patience and grace. He desires for those things to flow out of your heart after it's been made new by your faith in Jesus and been made yeah, regenerated. That's his goal. And that's why God came for Ahab. That's what he's doing here. So he says, Ahab, I'm here, man. I'm here for you. And I'm going to repeatedly appeal to your reason and to your heart to prove that I am the God you should be serving, not Baal. I'm after your heart. And this is one of the most encouraging texts, really, uh, for me with respect to God and his pursuit of us. Uh, it's, it's encouraging for me and pretty beautiful. Why? Because what has Ahab's life demonstrated completely up to this point? Complete rebellion against God. 
His life up to this point has demonstrated nothing but idolatry and worship of false gods, of complete rebellion against the word of God, and it's demonstrated a very bad and destructive marriage. <laughs> That's just being honest. That's what his life has, like up until this point, that is what his life has been. But in spite of that, in spite of that, or even because of that, God comes repeatedly to him to capture his heart, to lead him to repentance, to have him turn around and finally find affection towards the things of God. That is what he's coming. To this sinner, God repeatedly comes. And so I'm saying that as we're beginning this out. If you are here today and you struggle with guilt of your past, with shame over something that occurred in your past, and you've been, it's been playing in your mind, listen, what does God do for this King Ahab who's done nothing but rebel against him? Pursue his heart. And if that's how he feels towards Ahab, then how do you think he feels towards you? There is a God who loves you and is pursuing your heart, regardless of what happened in your past, regardless of what guilt you feel, he is pursuing you. I think that's totally awesome. And so let's look at his newest pursuit here of Ahab. Now, Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram. That Ben-Hadad, that's a, a name that means the son of the god Hadad. Um, just, there's like five of them who are named that uh, just in history. But he's, he's another one. So king, son of their god, Hadad. So Ben-Hadad of Aram, that's the nation to the north of Israel assembled his entire army. He made a coalition of other armies, 32 kings along with him. So these aren't kings like King Henry or, you know, King whatever, King Louis XIV or whatever your favorite one is from British history. But uh, so not in the absolute sense. These guys were kings over cities. And so say Fort Worth had a king and Willow Park has a king and Weatherford has a king. And they're like, they have walls around their city and they have a king who's kind of the, the mayor of that tent thing. He's the one in charge. And these all nation states uh, kind of, or these city states come together as one coalition to fight together for a, against a common enemy. So this guy has rallied these other cities together uh, to fight with him against Samaria or against Israel, God's new, uh, these, this new nation. And so he sent messengers into the city to King Ahab of Israel and said to him, this is what Ben-Hadad says, your silver and your gold are mine, the best of your wives and children. I don't know how he decides which ones are the best or not, but the best of them uh, are, are, they're mine. Now, after Omri, if you remember, we had a sermon quite a number of weeks ago about a king named Omri or Omri. That guy, the Bible doesn't say much about him, but he was hugely successful in setting up the nation for prosperity. And so up to this point, the nation's been hugely prosperous, has had a well-fed, well-go-to-do army. But what has happened over the past three years in this nation? Severe drought. So much drought that Ahab personally went out on a search party looking for Elijah and then looking for food to feed his chariots. And so his army has been 
decimated because of this drought. And so he is in an awkward position now, and these other nations see it. And so they're coming in saying, well, hey, here's a moment for us. We can come in and we can take control over Israel and make them a vassal state for us where they have to pay taxes to us. They have to, they have to submit to us and what we, what we want to do. And so, uh, and so they're coming into town. Ahab recognizes the position he's in. He recognizes, I used to be powerful, now I'm not powerful, and I'm in an awkward position here because this army is going to lay siege to my capital city, and if, they, if this city falls, it is not going to be good. So, initially, what he does is he tries to take the pathway of diplomacy. Look what he says in verse 4. The king of Israel answered, just as you say, my lord the king, I am yours. This is, this is Ahab saying this to Ben-Hadad. I am yours, along with all that I have. And so he says, the pathway of diplomacy, the best thing for our nation in this, in this position is to simply say, we submit to your demands because we, we, want, we don't want our city to be burned. Just This is the pathway of peace for us, so I'm going to give up my wives and my kids as hostages so that way you can leave us alone. The messengers returned, verse 5, and said, This is what Ben-Hadad says. I sent messengers to you saying, You're to give me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. But this time tomorrow, I'm going to send my servants to you. They're going to search your palace and your servants' houses. And whatever they want, whatever they lay their hands on and take away, they're going to do it. And so he extends this out. He sees, okay, well, if they're going to, if they're going to lay down before us, then we're just going to take the whole city. We don't even care anymore. We're going to take everything. Well, at this time, the king, verse 7, called for all the elders of the land and said, recognize that this one is only looking for trouble. So Ahab turned and he said, he, he pulled in all the elders, all of the wise men, all the wise women. He said, listen, this guy, everyone knows there's an army out there. They're knocking on the door. Like, it's not a secret. Like, these guys are out here. They're only looking for trouble. I told him that he could have my house. I told him he could take them as hostages to ensure that I'm going to be a good boy. But he said, that's not good enough. Now he's going to come in and take more stuff. He's only looking for trouble. He doesn't want the pathway of diplomacy. He's not interested in peace here. And so, at this point, everyone else says, listen, verse 8, all the elders and all the people said, fine. If he wants a fight, we'll give him a fight. Don't listen to him and don't agree. So he said to Ben-Hadad's messengers, Say to my lord the king, Everything you demanded of your servant the first time, I will do, but this thing I cannot do. So the messengers left and took the word back to him. Then Ben-Hadad sent messengers to him and said, May the gods punish me and do so severely. This is a way of swearing. And do so severely if Samaria's dust amounts to a handful for each of the people who follow me. What he just said is, we are going to pound your city to dust, and my army is so big that we're not even going to have enough loot for everyone to have a handful of stuff to take away. That's what he's saying. i got a real big army. We're going to kill you. But listen to this response. Okay, I love this. So in, in Ukraine, the, I mean, there, the, we've had two examples of something like this happening in the past couple years in which... There is a nation that has had another nation or another group threatening to invade. 
and we've seen a response from two different leaders in these situations. So one is uh, Vladimir Zelensky in Ukraine with the, with the invasion of Russia. There's a second one. There was a second one. What was his name? Uh, oh, Ashraf Ghani in, in Afghanistan. So in 2020. So when the U.S. pulled out, or 2021, when, when the U.S. pulled out and, uh, and the Taliban came back in in Afghanistan, what happened is he fled the nation. And so we've seen uh, this, this invasion happen in two different nations and two different leaders respond to it in two different ways. And so in one way, it's like, okay, we're going to lay down, we're going to take the pathway of peace, we're going to get out of the way and let them have the nation. But there's another one that we've seen in Ukraine, which is a, an attitude of defiance, of like, oh no. If you want to fight, we understand you're bigger, we understand you're better, we understand that, that you have more resources, we understand you have more money, we understand you've been planning for this, but if you want to fight, we're going to give you a fight. And, and Ahab here takes this Vladimir Zelensky approach that we, everyone, like becomes the world's hero at this point. Everyone like, like looks at him and is like, that's a dude I want to follow. That's a dude who, who inspires me. Like, I want to go, I want to go fight for Ukraine because of the way that he has led his nation. Ahab here steps up for his nation at this point. And I want you to see what he says. This king, Ben-Hadad, says, our army is so big, we are going to crush your city, and there's not going to be enough loot for everyone to even have a handful to take home with them. And here is what Ahab says back. And I love this. And it's like my, my red-blooded, rebellious American spirit. And here's what he says. The king of Israel answered, say this, don't let the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. What he just told him, essentially, I wouldn't, I wouldn't talk like you've already won this battle, bud. And that was it. That was it. Well, check this out. This gets exciting. When Ben-Hadad heard this response, while he and his king, the other kings were drinking in their quarters, they're out having a good time. He said to his servants, what do you say to me? He said, take up your arms. He tells everyone to load up, get up, get on the tanks, get on the horses. We're moving out, buds. And, uh, and, so, uh, and so take up your positions. So they took their positions against the city. Super exciting battle scene happening. We have a defiant Ahab who's stepping up and giving his nation a person to follow, giving a defiant attitude that if you're, listen, if you're going to be besieged and you got to have a battle to the death, at least you want a William Wallace to lead you into death. Okay, that's what you want. And uh, so Ahab steps up in that moment to be that character for us. But look at this. This is vital. Verse 13 is vital for the point of this story. Because why does the Bible tell us about this? Verse 13 is the reason why. There's a prophet who approached the king. And he said, this is what the Lord says. Oh, notice, hold up. Does it tell us the prophet's name? No. Who's been the prophet coming to Ahab every time something has come to Ahab from the Lord? Elijah. But what happened last week with Elijah? He got depressed because he felt like his ministry was a failure and he quit the ministry. So he fled the nation. And so then God wants to bring another word of the Lord to Ahab. So he brings another man, a different prophet. And I think this is an important point for Elijah here and for you and me. Because even though Elijah was the main man, he was the dude. The work of God still continued on even when he took himself out of the picture. And I think that's really encouraging, both for him 
and for us of like, one, God wants to use you, but it doesn't rest on you. It doesn't rest on you. And so if you don't see results, that's okay. That's okay. The work of God is still going to continue. And so the, the weight of seeing things work out is not on you, it's on God. And then if you take yourself out of the picture, God will use someone else. And I think that's, I think that's really awesome. But anyways, so a different dude, a different prophet approaches King Ahab and says, here is the word of the Lord. Here's what the Lord says. Do you see this whole army? He says, watch. Literally, God told Ahab, watch this. I am going to hand this entire army over to you today so that you may know that I am the Lord. Fascinating. This is another example of God is coming to capture Ahab's heart, saying, I'm going to come for you. I'm not forgetting about you. You didn't reject me once, and I'm done with you. You rejected me a hundred times, and I'm still coming after you. I'm still coming after your heart. And so I'm going to hand this entire army over to you today so that you would know that I am the Lord. It's amazing. But check this out. It gets cooler. Ahab turned to him. He said, okay, by whom? What he just asked was, you're going to hand this over to us. Awesome. Who's going to be the one to do it? <laughs> who's going to be like the, phys- the person physically who's going to go beat these guys? And the prophet said, this is what the Lord says. By the young men of the provincial leaders. That's a translation for your army. Then he asked, okay, well then who's supposed to start the battle? And he said, you. That is amazing. Like, I don't know, I just, I, I read this, and it's like, I, I'm like uh, in my, my, on a text here, I just like, you, just like underlined you like a hundred times. Like, because like, just this, the means that God is going to use to bring out this sign for Ahab is Ahab. Awesome, okay? That's super awesome. Ahab, God is the one who's going to work faith into Ahab by working through Ahab's faith. Isn't that crazy? God says, I want you to demonstrate faith here, and by you demonstrating faith here, by what I'm telling you to do, then I'm going to develop faith in your heart. That's what he's trying to do here. There's a lesson for us in this. And that all people are called to live by faith, even Ahab. All people are called to live by faith, even Ahab. It's like, this is, I don't know, I think this is awesome. Ahab's, because Ahab's been consistent in his false worship. Remarkably consistent in his false worship and in his rebellion against God. Yet God still came after him. As we talked about at the beginning, he came after him and after his heart. And God in this is remarkably consistent in coming after him time and time and time again. In his patient tenacity, he's a good brewer bear. He's got grit. He is a gritty God. And coming after 
sinners, pursuing sinners' heart. And we see this, that he does this ultimately in like bringing it in fulfillment through his son, Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus manifested the heart of God to the fullest extent. And here's what he says. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching Jesus and listening to him. The, the sinners and the outcasts, the people that, that the religious people didn't want to be around. And they were approaching Jesus and listening to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they were the really religious people. They were complaining. And they're like, this man, this rabbi, Jesus, he welcomes sinners and he eats dinner with sinners. So he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in an open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, He joyfully puts it on his shoulders, and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. As Jesus says, man, this is God's heart. This is God's heart. He is after the Ahabs of the world. He's after the yous of the world. He wants to come and capture your heart in the moment that you turn to him in faith and repent of your sin and believe and follow Christ. He said there is more rejoicing happening in heaven than over a million people who don't need repentance. All of heaven rejoices when you turn to Christ in faith. Isn't that a remarkable statement? It's a remarkable statement. And that is God's heart. That is God's heart for you. And that's his heart for Ahab here. And so what is, he, what is he wanting from him? His heart and his repentance. His repentance. And what, just as a side note, what is repentance? Repentance means a 180 degree turn. Or I'll put it this way. It means practically admitting that you are not following Christ admitting that you are not following Christ, acknowledging that you need Christ, and then declaring that you will now follow Christ and commit to pursue obedience to him. That's what repentance really means. That's what repentance is, and that's what he desires in this moment. And so check this out. Ahab, back in 1 Kings, responds to this initially. Look, this is really, this is a, a fascinating thing to me. So Ahab, verse 15, mobilized the young men of the provincial leaders, and there were 232 of them. After them, he mobilized all the Israelite troops, 7,000, and they marched out at noon while Ben-Hadab and the 32 kings who were helping him were getting drunk in their quarters. That was just a continual thing for them, I guess. The young men of the provincial leaders marched out first. Then Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, saying, Men are marching out of Samaria. So he said, If they've marched out in peace, take them alive. And if they've marched out for battle, take them alive. I don't know, what's he, I don't know what he, he's thinking there. But the young men of the provincial leaders and the army behind them marched out from the city, and each one struck down his opponent. So the Arameans fled, and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad of Aram escaped on a horse with the cavalry. And the king of Israel marched out and attacked the cavalry and the chariots, and he inflicted a severe slaughter on Aram. 
And a prophet approached the king of Israel and said to him, Go and strengthen yourself to consider carefully what you should do. For in the spring, the king of Aram will attack you. So what happened? They marched out for battle. Completely destroyed the Arameans. Completely destroyed them. And Ben-Hadad had to flee, escape. Why? Because the Lord was with them. And he handed over that army to him. But what did the prophet say? Be careful. You need to strengthen your army. Because when the springtime comes, they're coming back. So check this out. So now, the king of Aram's servant said to him, Their gods are the gods of the hill country. That's why they were stronger than we were and said we should fight with them on the plain. So back then, they thought gods were, were confined to specific jurisdictions. So if your god was the god of the mountains, then that's where he was really successful. If your god was the god of the caves, then that's where he was successful. If your god was the god of fertility, then that's where your god was really successful in things dealing with that realm. And so they were like, well, maybe their god is the god of the mountains, so if we fight with them in a different location, then perhaps their God won't be able to come with them. So in the spring, they go to a different location. Look at verse 26. Ben-Hadad mobilized the Arameans and went up to Aphek uh, to battle Israel. The Israelites mobilized, gathered supplies, and went to fight them. And they, this line is important. The Israelites camped in front of them, like two little flocks of goats, while the Arameans filled the landscape. That's just a funny metaphor. You're just saying there weren't very many of them, but like two little flocks, whatever. Then the man of God, that next dude, not, a, not Elijah, approached and said to the king of Israel, here's the word of the Lord again. Because the Arameans have said, the Lord, or Yahweh, is a God of the mountains and not a God of the valleys, I will hand over this whole huge army to you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. It's the fourth time or fifth time that God has sent to prove himself to Ahab. He said, they said that I only did that because we were in the mountains. So now you're in the valley, you're in the plain, whatever. I'm going to prove again that I am the real God. So he's displaying his works. So they camped opposite each other for seven days. On the seventh day, the battle took place, and the Israelites struck down the Arameans, 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. Crazy. The ones who remained in the city of Aphek and in the wall fell on those 27,000 remaining men. The, the wall of the city fell on those other people. God is clearly wanting to kill them. Uh, then Ben-Hadad also fled and went into the inner room of the city. Now, this is interesting. This is important for us. His servants said to him, consider this, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let's put on sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads. Let's go to the king of Israel. Maybe he'll spare your life. So they did that, and they went to Ahab. They said, please spare his life. So he said, is he still alive? He's my brother. Not real brother, but just like, you know, bro, I guess. King bros, I don't know. Now, the men were looking for a sign of hope, so they quickly picked up on this and responded, yes, it is your brother, Ben-Hadad. Then he said, go bring him in. So Ben-Hadad came out to him, 
And Ahab came up in front, in, uh, came, uh, had him come up in a chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, I restore to you the cities that my father took from your father. And you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus. That's Ben-Hadad's capital, like my father set up in Samaria. And Ahab responded, on the basis of this treaty, I release you. So he made a treaty with him and released him. This is an important and grave decision. Why? Because what did God say? I'm going to hand these people over to you. And at that point, God made a declaration of what should happen. Everyone in the army should be killed. Now, how does that work with God's mercy? I don't know. That's what God declared. Everyone in this army should be killed. But Ahab disregarded that and sought to be wise in his own, lie, wise in his own eyes, and he let him go. Here's where it gets fun. So if you've ever seen, oh, anyways, I'll tell you in a second. So God's going to bring just judgment. Verse 35, so one of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow prophet, by the word of the Lord, strike me. So he went, so he's a prophet, went to his buddy who's a prophet. He said, hey, dude, punch me in the face. The man refused to strike him. And he told him, because you did not listen to the Lord, this was from the word of the Lord, the, Lord, the word of the Lord came and said, you need to punch this guy in the face. And he said, no. He told him, because you did not listen to the Lord, mark my words, when you leave me, a lion will kill you. And when he left him, a lion attacked and killed him. So if you, have you, there's a movie that came out in 1986 called The Three Amigos. It's a really great movie, okay? Chevy Chase and Martin Short uh, and, and, so, uh, and Steve Martin. And so um, it was an amazing movie, okay, by the way. If you've never seen it, I recommend you go to Blockbuster, check it out, and play it on your... And so... Um, but there's a scene in this movie. So these, there are three guys who are actors, okay? And they, they get kicked out of their movie studio because they tried to make too much money. And the movie studio's like, no, nah, we don't need you anymore. And so they went down to fight El Wapo in Mexico, uh, which means the beautiful one. And he's a gang or cartel leader. And uh, so they're going down to go fight this guy. But they believe... They're going to fight the most famous guy in all of Mexico, the infamous El Wapo. And so they're going to go down and, 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 and be in a play with him. They think they're going to act with this famous actor in Mexico. And so they show up, and one day, the first time they meet El Wapo and his gang, they're out on horsebacks, and they're out in, in this desert. And they show up, and they literally believe that they are in a play. They're acting things out with these other cool actors in Mexico. And so they sit there and like, no, 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 tell us we will die like dogs. Like, you will die like dogs. They're like, yeah. And so like they're, they're doing this whole thing. But then all of a sudden, El Wapo says, I like these guys. Only kill one of them. And so he has his, his right-hand man shoot Lucky. And that's Chevy Chase. So Chevy Chase gets shot. And uh, the other guys are like, whoa. And they're like, that's blood. And all of a sudden, one guy, Dusty, goes over and looks at the, at the gun. He's like, wait, these are real bullets. I'm going to keep this. And then all of a sudden, it dawns on them, wait a second. We're playing with live ammo. This is a real situation here. And then they start begging for their lives, and they try to run away. That's exactly how I imagine this thing went for this dude right here, this other prophet. You're like, wait, wait, wait. 
wait, I thought we were just like acting out what God wanted us to do. Like, like God said, punch you in the face. And I was like, I'm probably not going to do that. But then live bullets come out. A lion comes and kills him. It's a very serious thing. God is doing something in this moment. It's actually meant to be prophetic here. It's meant to be prophetic. They're playing with live bullets. The man faced justice from God for disobeying him. He experienced the fate that's actually coming to Ahab. Look at this. Verse 37, the prophet found another man and said, punch me, strike me. So the man punched him, inflicting a wound. Then the prophet went and waited for the king on the road, and he disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. So what happened? The first guy didn't obey. And so he found a second guy who would obey. And this is prophetic over what's going to happen to Ben-Hadad. Because Ahab wouldn't kill him like God told him to. So God said, I'm going to raise up someone else named Hazael who's going to come kill him like he's supposed to. But then the prophet takes his wound and goes, hides out. And he's going to go tell this stuff to Ahab. The king was passing by and he cried out to the king and said, your servant marched out in the middle of battle. Suddenly a man turned aside and brought someone to me and said, guard this man. If he's ever missing, it will be your life in place of his life, or, or you will weigh out 75 pounds of silver. But while your servant was busy here and there, he disappeared. The king of Israel, Ahab, turned and said to him, this will be your sentence. You yourself had decided it. But then he quickly removed his bandage from his eyes. <laughs> and you can, it's right here, you can just feel Ahab's disdain. And the king of Israel recognized it was one of the prophets. And the prophet said to him, this is what the Lord says, because you released from your hand the man that I set apart for destruction, it will be your life in place of his life, your people in place of his people. And so here in this, we see the justice come from God for the disobedience of Ahab after God pursued his heart. But here's a question. The last thing we're going to do is you have two conflicting ideas at work in this text. Because you have God's mercy running after Ahab, God's grace coming after him, pursuing his heart, even though he's a sinner and rejects him. But then you also have God's justice running after Ahab because he's a sinner and he rejects God. And the question is, how do you have those two, like, what do you do with that tension? How does this work out? And how does it work out in my life? Because I'm a sinner too. Like, how does that work together? How can, this, how can God both like, like show forbearance or patience, but also display severe justice at the same time? Here's the, here's the thing. What we see in this text is the tension that points us to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what we see. Because in the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the justice of God and the mercy of grace, mercy and grace of God come together. That's what we see. Listen to this. There's a song we're going to sing in just a second called In Christ Alone. And it beautifully teaches how God resolved this tension in Christ. So, Ben, y'all go ahead and come up, and I'm going to read these verses to you. Just listen to this. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save or rejected, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. How is the justice of God, the wrath of God, satisfied? For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. 
And there in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. It's the blood of Christ where the justice and the grace of God come together for the sinner. There's no now, no guilt in life, and no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. It's through Christ that God pursues your heart. And just as God desired to see that take place in Ahab, it's here in the power of Christ that you can stand.